this morning to Psalm 38. So at the end of every November, I remember from my pew seeing these purple banners pop up on stage at my Anglican or Episcopal church in which I was raised. And it made me happy because I was an acolyte in the church. In other words, I would follow the vicar down the aisle every Sunday carrying something. And on, on these days, on uh, Advent days, I got to carry what was known as a torch and light that first Advent candle. And the rest of the year, I only got to carry banners, these, these large felt banners, which smelled like old gym socks. When I took them out, and I would just carry them down, and I would just almost cry from the smell. And so I was very happy. Anytime someone gave me a torch and, and fire, you know, I, I was made. I was good. So I loved it. And once after I got up there, I remember the vicar would begin to explain the themes of each banner and corresponding candle. Hope, peace, joy, and love. And about every year, the message, I think uh, Pastor Gary went something like this. Because of what Jesus did, because of what Jesus will do, we should this week all feel hopeful. And then the following week, he would say the same thing. And this week, we should all feel peaceful. And then next week, he said, well, this week, you should all feel joyful. And finally, the last week, we should all feel loving because of what Jesus did, what he will do. And growing up, it was easy for me to increasingly feel all those emotions, mostly because I had always, around Advent, started to find my parents' stash of presents that they hid for Christmas. And I was like, this is easy. I can feel full, joyful, peaceful, and full of love. And of course, as that increased, the stack of presents, I felt more of those things. But I found out as I got older that I don't always around Christmas feel hopeful. I don't always feel peaceful, joyful, full of love. Certainly not at the same level I did as a kid. And I'm not alone in that. Talk to almost any uh, sociologist, psychologist, they'll tell you that they observe a spike in, in depression and anxiety and frustration during the holiday season. And it's no wonder, right? When we consider the stress we put on ourselves, expectations, wild expectations sometimes, about what we'll experience during the holiday season that cannot possibly be met, noticing others happy together in their color-coordinated clothing, right, in the pictures that they take while we feel kind of isolated, not having that person that we miss to bake cookies with us or put lights up. We feel their absence. So I felt we needed to try to do a series on emotions, in part to reconcile these two sort of opposing forces. Many of us in reality feel apathetic, anxious, sad, even angry, and yet we'll open a devotional book, right? light a candle, or hear a pastor say, yeah, but you should feel hopeful, peaceful, joyful, loving. Emotions are not an on-off switch. We wish they were, right? It would be great if we had that option to take everything that was going on in here, turn it off, and switch on all those positive emotions, right? So we immediately feel, man, happy, full of joy, full of love, full of peace. But emotions don't really work that way, do they? There's no on-off switch for them. But God uses these so-called negative emotions almost like a school 
to, to teach us. We see, we see in God's word that there's something that he wants to teach us, something he wants to do in us as we experience things like apathy, sadness, anxiety, even anger and frustration. And so, really calling this series emotions, the bad ones aren't so bad. That's what we're going to see over the next four weeks. Rather than try to sidestep all the bad emotions, right, to, to, to sidestep them, to suppress them, or just to eat, drink, smoke them away, God intends for us to, to face them head on, to walk through them with God as he transforms those emotions into something more authentic, an authentic kind of hope, an authentic kind of peace, an authentic kind of joy, an authentic kind of love, not just make-believe emotions that we put on for others over Christmas holidays. So first up among the bad ones, the so-called bad ones, is apathy, which is kind of like the absence of emotion, right? But, but through which, through apathy, God means to lead us towards a more genuine and authentic hope. Let's talk about apathy for a minute. Apathy is a lack of movement or action that results from no longer caring. You just don't give a darn anymore. And it causes you to get kind of stuck. And there's, there's two kinds of apathy, both in the Bible and in life. I'm going to define them two ways. There's an entitled kind of apathy and a well-worn apathy. Entitled apathy is a lack of movement and action from people who can afford to sit around, get bored, and wonder if life is really worth carrying on. We find this actually in the Bible. We find it in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, which was written by a wealthy older king during the golden age of Israel. Riches for everyone, peace on every side, nothing to worry about. And so Solomon can literally afford to sit around and ask the question, what's this all worth? Vanity, vanity, it's all vanity. But there's another kind of apathy, what I call a well-worn apathy. That's a lack of movement because of circumstances in life that have so worn a person down, almost like eroding you on every side that a person starts to wonder if life is worth carrying on. Is it worth keep on doing what I'm doing? This is a person who feels utterly stuck, and it's this person I'm preaching to this morning. Not entitled apathy, but the person who is worn down by life and just feels utterly stuck. And my prayer has been that such people would be here this morning and that if that is not you this morning, that you might be equipped to help people who are utterly stuck or you might be equipped for the future when you feel that way yourself. This is David in Psalm 38. A man who loves God, a man who's felt the most intense joy for God. Remember Psalm 19? We studied it earlier this year. And, and God talk, or David talks about knowing God intimately through the wonder of his creation. He talks about knowing God intimately through the power of his word. He talks about knowing God int- intimately through the sp- spokenness of prayer. And yet here in Psalm 38, we find a man who is just worn down and stuck. So let's read together Psalm 38, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate. 
All the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me. In the light of my eyes, it is also gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague. And my nearest kin stands far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth, I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin. My foes are vigorous. They are mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good. Accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. This is God's word. So if you've never read the Psalms, the Psalter, let me talk about that for a minute. Psalms are sung prayers to God, which is pretty unique. And if if you've ever read your younger sister's diary when you were a kid, that betrayal may finally come in handy uh, in getting a handle on what it is to read the Psalms. Because they are entries into a prayer journal, a prayer diary by people who wish to trust a good God while the world is falling apart around them and often inside of them. They're broken. Psalms, the way we read them, they're supposed to be read sort of over the shoulder because the audience isn't other people like the rest of the Bible, right? We, we have other things like letters that Paul writes and gospels meant to help people trust Jesus, revelation to tell what, what's, what's to come, to inform people. Psalms are reading over another person's shoulder because their audience isn't other people, but God. They are prayers written down to God. So we're, in a sense, looking over people's shoulder, reading their prayer diary, and praying it ourselves. And if that's not unique enough about what we have in the Psalms, each entry into this prayer diary is not only to God, it's inspired by God. Imagine writing out your prayers to God, freely expressing all kinds of thoughts and emotions, feelings bouncing around inside of you, and each time, whatever you express is elevated by the Holy Spirit to express perfectly this raw emotion. It's a mystery, an incredible gift. Right? God, knowing us better than we know ourselves, gives us language, the best language, to vent, to grieve, to wonder, to celebrate, even to complain all without compromising the integrity of his word. So the bottom line is we should use these, especially when we're talking about emotions. And at the center of this particular prayer is a man who sounds like he's about to give up, right? Look at verse 13. He kind of stops there, doesn't he? He's been complaining. He God, here's all the things that are happening to me. And he says this, but I am like a deaf man. 
I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth, I become like a man who does not hear, in whose mouth there are no rebukes. So David is stuck. He's stuck to the point where he ceases listening. He doesn't care to talk himself. He doesn't even defend himself or his reputation anymore when he's attacked. He's like, oh well. Thus, it's the perfect psalm for us this morning as we aim to to face apathy head on with God. In this psalm, we see a man, first of all, acknowledge how he got stuck. We see also the silver lining of feeling stuck. So many of you this morning feel stuck. I want to encourage you, there's hope. There's a silver lining. There's a purpose in feeling stuck that God wants to use. Thirdly, we see some small things to get unstuck. I believe we can very much move forward to an authentic hope, not that fake hope, not that Christmas hope we put on for others, but authentic hope if we face head-on our apathy similarly with God. So first, acknowledge how you got stuck. Have you ever noticed, by the way, how trials in life rarely come in singles? They always come in doubles, triples, quadruples, don't they? And yet we grew up listening to children's stories that only had one problem. I was thinking about this this last week. I was looking at some of our kids' old books. A giving tree that kept on giving because the boy kept taking the tree for granted. And we learned from the story that the big problem is don't take things or people for granted. A tortoise beats a hare. Why? Because the hare is what? He's complacent. He's complacent. So the moral of the story, the problem is don't be complacent. One of my favorites around Christmas time, I don't know if you've ever heard of Barrington Bunny. Barrington Bunny who loses his bunny family. And he goes around to different homes and asks the squirrel, squirrel, are you, do you have my family in there? No, we're just squirrels. Birds, do you have family? No, we're just birds. Right? So the big problem is Barrington Bunny, he doesn't have a family. And so we're taught growing up that life comes in one problem at a time. But that rarely happens, does it? And it's way too simplistic. Usually, problems come wave after wave after wave to the point where we throw up our hands and say, God, I can't do this anymore. We get stuck. David gets stuck similarly because of compounding problems. Not singles, not even doubles or triples, not even quadruples, but quintuples in the face of David, all right? First, on his list of complaints of how he's gotten stuck is his own sin. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me if you would. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. My iniquities, which is another fancy word for an act of sin. My iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. David talks here about his own rebellion in terms of a rising tide that is going up, 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 up. It's about to drown him. And he also describes it like this weight on his shoulders that's about to crush him. You see the picture here, right? He sees sin, his own rebellion against God, all around him. It's rising above his head. It's coming above him and weighing him down. He intensely feels it, which is interesting, given that he also goes on to admit all these other injustices done against him. Right? And when you have injustices done against you, is your own sin usually the first thing you remember? It isn't for me. I like to complain about all the other things going on. Why am I sick, God? Why are all these people doing this to me? Why aren't people paying attention to me and caring about me? During the era of slavery in the United States, the slaves would compose and sing what were known as spirituals. They were these songs 
dedicated to God, and they would sing them together in sort of this chanting form. And one of the spirituals that these slaves composed went like this. There is a balm in Gilead that makes the wounded whole. There is a balm in Gilead that heals the sin-sick soul. Consider how remarkable those lyrics are. This is the people who are singing this, who are treated like animals, used, sold, degraded, and yet they recognize their sin-sick soul. And I wonder if we do. Not just sickness, enemies, indifference from our friends and family, the psychological toll these things take, but there's something inside of me when I feel stuck that wants to seek revenge, that wants to look for comfort, that's greedy for gain, and then just easily throws up my hands and gives up. We're stuck because of it. It starts because of the rebellion in our own hearts, but it's also those other things that cause David to feel stuck, right? Like sickness, verses 5 through 7. My wounds stink and fester. One of the kids up here when I read that said, ooh. <laughs> and yeah, you're right. My sides are filled with burning. There's no soundness in my flesh. It's those things too. It's, it's the enemies, or at least those who seem against us, right? Those who seem to scoff at us who roll their eyes and never seem to give us the benefit of the doubt. It's those people who are compounding this pressure upon us. David says in verse 12, those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt, they speak of ruin. They set a trap, whether they think about that or not. And now, you know what? It's it's super hard to endure enemies, isn't it? To feel like there are people against you and they're acting on being against you. But man, it is a punch to the gut when friends and family act similarly or just are indifferent towards us. They walk away. They see that we're suffering. They see that we're having a hard time. And yet they walk away. Look at that in verse 11. It happens to David. My friends and companions, they stand aloof from my plague. That means indifferent. They just, they don't care. My nearest of kin, they stand far off. I know a dear woman in our church, she shared with me that the harder things get for her, the less she sees of her so-called friends. And she said to me this, which was really a profound statement. She says, I worry at the end of the day, most people, they just want to be around prosperity and fun. They don't want to be around me. It was so hard to hear that, and yet it was so, so true, even for Christians, even for the church. When things get hard, friends will sometimes be there for you once or twice But if they keep compounding problems, a lot of times a so-called friend just walks away. I don't really want to be around that. And you also get stuck because of the psychological toll all these things take on you. The disappointment about your sin. The victimization, reaching out to indifferent friends. Fending off those who seem to be against us. David says, because of these things, the light of my eyes has gone out from me. You know the light in someone's eyes, right? That spark they have when you see them and you're like, oh man. They're having a good day today. Or I really enjoyed meeting that person. But here we find a person, a man, where that is totally drained from his eyes. He talks about, verse 8, I groan because of the tumult of my heart. Tumultuous, right? What an, what an apt description, I think. You feel stuck, unable to move, and you fe- then you feel bad about feeling bad. I shouldn't feel bad, God. I know I shouldn't feel bad. I, I consider the starving children in Africa. I don't have it that bad. And so you feel guilty which compounds the problem. And then you wonder when or if this feeling will ever end. 
You start to doubt yourself, even your salvation. And so all these things are coming upon you. And it might not be all of these things I mentioned this morning, but it's usually more than one of these things because hardships and problems rarely come in singles and they make us feel stuck. David did something that we, at least I, rarely do when I'm stuck. Too often we will complain to everyone else before we complain to God, right? We even post it on Facebook sometimes, mysteriously, before we complain to God. I do this with headaches a lot. When someone asks me, like, how are you doing? Oh, man, I got splitting hair. Or, or people, someone will listen. I'll tell them about my headache. Right? But I, I really, I just thought, I, I, how often do I say, God, I got a headache. Please help me. Similarly, with all these compounding trials and hardship, and my encouragement to you is share with God, like David did, share with God all the reasons for how you got stuck. Write it down today. Even spend time in a minute when we sing to God and worship just to list all the reasons that have gotten you stuck. Don't hold back. He wants to hear all of them. Because, you know, other people, they can listen, yet do nothing else. Some people can get sympathy. A lot of people will give you advice when you share a hardship or complaint. But only God can really answer. You know what I mean by that? I mean really answer. Verse 15, David says it. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. Here's someone who not only hears, but can do something, will do something. I want to talk to you also about the fact that there's a silver lining of feeling stuck. And I recognize saying a silver lining when I don't feel anything, when I don't want to do anything, when I feel utterly stuck in my life, right? I mean, how could that be? Well, good and sovereign God has a purpose. This kind of well-worn apathy, what it is, is it's God's waiting room. So every week what I want to do is give you one image, one thought about how God can use negative emotions. And apathy, this kind of well-worn apathy, is God's waiting room. After David throws up his hands and essentially says, hey man, I might as well stop listening, speaking, even caring to defend myself, the next thing he does, notice, is wait Look at verse 15. But for you, he talks about, God, I can't, I can't hear, I can't speak. I don't even want to defend myself. But for you, O oh Lord, do I wait. This is a man who has proved waiting in the past. After being anointed king, David spends the next 10 years of his life just waiting. Primarily as a fugitive from the law. Fugitive from the king. A king who's trying to murder him. And during this time, God humbles David. Imagine, David, you're going to be king. First task, run for 10 years. Run for your life. And so he waits in places like caves. He waits in the camps of enemies, sometimes pretending to be insane, all the while waiting for God to fulfill this promise for him to become king. And during that time, God humbles him, shapes his character, helps him learn to know how to lead men David, we don't know, but David may have written this psalm during this time in God's waiting room. And there was a silver lining in it. One thing the waiting room of apathy can do is give us time to re-examine our ability. Uh, We've all experienced waiting in that room, right? That doctor's office. To see someone who can finally tell us what's going on and what might happen to us. I remember this past year finding a rather uh, large and irregularly shaped mold in my left armpit. And man, it scared me. 
I know a lot of you guys have experienced much worse, so I, I, I don't want to elevate that. But for me, seeing this and recognizing, man, it scared me. And I'm a, as I waited in that room for the doctor, I recognized, man, I, I am totally at the mercy of the doctor's diagnosis and his potential solution. I recognize I, I have very little to say about the outcome of my life at this point. And so I had an opportunity to re-examine my ability for God, or lack thereof, really. That ultimately, there's really nothing I can do at this point as I wait in this room for a physician to tell me what I'm supposed to do and what I'm supposed to expect and whether I can be healed. And it's humbling. And when we are humbled, it's the moment when God can really reach our hearts, save us, rescue us, use us. James 4, 6 so that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That often happens as we wait, guys. A waiting room is also coldly realistic, teaching us a better hope. Waiting rooms, I don't know what you think of when you think of waiting rooms. I think of fluorescent lights, those little cups of water, those little cone cups of water that sometimes leak. And it's just mostly bare. There's like two pieces of art in there from like the 1970s, right? That's what I think of when I think of a waiting room. Waiting room is the only place where you're going to pick up a People magazine from last year. Right? I'll just like kind of thumb through it. And you do so just to pass the time because it's so bleak. And I think such a place spiritually, without, the, without distraction of comfort, is designed to help us get realistic with ourselves. There is something wrong with me. And for whatever reason, God up to this point has withheld the gift of healing, of wholeness, of total restoration. It's a, it's a coldly realistic moment that leads us to a better hope. Proverbs 13, 12 says that hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. And sometimes most, many of us have, have felt nothing but good things in our lives. And we're surprised when apathy, God, why would you want me to feel nothing? Why would you want me to be stuck? It might be because you've put your hope in your feelings of feeling good, of feeling comfortable, of feeling happy all the time, of feeling pats on the back. God says, I want to lead you to a better hope, a more sure hope, not a deferred hope that will make your heart sick. There might be total wholeness and restoration in the great physician's office. There might be more waiting to follow. If God, though, immediately restored some of us to those positive emotions those great circumstances. He knows we would put our hope back in those things. We base our worth on the circumstances of our lives and go up and down and up and down constantly, whether things are going good or bad. He wants to anchor us in a far surer hope. Hebrews 6.19 speaks about a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, that we have a promise in Jesus Christ that God loves us no matter how we feel, that God accepts us no matter how we feel because of our trust in Jesus. And it's that hope that God wants to anchor us in. So if, if you are feeling like, man, I don't care anymore. I feel so stuck. I, I don't even want to do anything. Know that, that God has a purpose for you in that. He is humbling you. So you might be realistic about the fact that you're completely dependent on God. He is anchoring you with a sure hope that circumstances and good feelings are not things to base our lives or decisions on, but rather Jesus Christ. I just want to talk to you about one last thing, a third thing. The small things to get unstuck, if you're feeling that way. 
In the Old Testament, there's this wonderful book of prophecy called Zechariah. And this book and this prophet is, is meant to give hope to God's people who've been stuck for some time. They've been in a foreign land, feeling little purpose. And God says something, says to his people that this temple, this temple and this land that they're going to go back to is, is going to be rebuilt brick by brick. This is the place where God's presence dwells. So he's trying to give them hope. Hey guys, you have a future. You have a hope. He talks about a man named Zerubbabel who's going to bring forth the first stone of the temple, the cornerstone, to which God's people might be, reply, hey, this is our hope, one stone, one rock that someone probably found by a creek. That's what we get? What about the whole temple? What about rebuilding our lives, our jobs, our fields? We feel stuck. God anticipates this and says in chapter 4, verse 10 of Zechariah, do not despise the day of small things. Do not despise the day of small things. When we get stuck, appreciate the small things and do the small things yourself. What are the small things then? We actually hint at them here in the Psalms. It's fulfilled in the New Testament, right? The first small thing, groans and sighs that are heard by our Father. Feeling stuck, utterly stuck. David does the smallest of things. Look at that in verse 8. I am feeble and crushed, and because of that I groan. Verse 9, Lord, my sighing is not hidden from you. All David can get out. He can't talk, he can't listen, he can't only hardly do anything, but he can groan and he can sigh. The Apostle Paul tells us that because of stuckness of life caused by sin, all of creation does this. All creation groans. In Romans 8.23, he goes on to say that we all also groan inwardly. So accordingly, he basically says that, and I'm very much paraphrasing this, we might as well groan outwardly too. We might as well. We might as well sigh. We might as well groan outwardly. Romans 8, 24 through 26 is this, for in this hope, the hope of being adopted into God's family, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, right? For who hopes and what he sees? In other words, if God improved our circumstances, made our feelings feel better right away, that would not be a real hope. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. See the connection there between David and what we have in Jesus Christ. We too can groan. Not only does God, like a great physician, hear these groans and sighs and know like, hey, something's wrong here. He's the one who helps us in them. If you don't know what to say, You can give your best moan, your best sigh to God. Do the small things, a little more singing, a little more walking, or just sit down and say, God, I don't have anything to say, but I'm here. I'm here. God, our Father, loves to hear those things. He knows those groans. He's diagnosed those groans before, and he's healed those groans as well. But God takes this a step further. He takes sighs and groans a step further. You can actually ask God for a special gift when you don't know what to pray, say, or do in your life. You can ask God for the gift of speaking in tongues. You probably didn't expect to hear about that in this sermon, did you? But here it is. Um, 
when you trust Jesus, the Holy Spirit gives gifts to help us. To help us, especially in our very point of need. God loves, the Holy Spirit loves to give gifts where we need them the most. So sometimes he gives a gift whereby you speak a language only known to God. You can't just make this stuff up. You just start groaning. You start sighing. And God, the Holy Spirit, turns that into a language only known to God. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 14, 2, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. The complaining, the the sighs, the groaning, not to men, to God. Just like we see in, in, in Psalm 38. Continuing on with 1 Corinthians 14, 2, For no one understands that person, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. It's a work of the Spirit. As you groan, as you sigh, God can give you this gift whereby it is a language to God. A special language where God can hear your sighs, hear your groanings, and love to sympathize with you and love to answer you. In many ways, it's an amped up version of sighing and growing. So if you find yourself stuck, don't be shy. Consider asking God for the gift of speaking in tongues. Tongues is a gift that God, the Holy Spirit, gave to my lovely wife, Katie. She gave me permission to share this. When she was just a girl, she watched her parents undergo a, a, a bitter marital separation, all while enduring chronic pain in her back and rarely being able to think straight because of the effect of gluten had on, on undiagnosed celiac disease. She, she couldn't think straight often. She had chronic pain. She watched her parents, who she loved dearly, endure a bitter divorce. She was stuck. And God, the Holy Spirit, gave her the gift of speaking in tongues so that when she didn't know how to pray, she could groan and she could sigh, and God would hear her. And as a family, Mason, Gage, and I, we don't despise this small thing. God has blessed her and has blessed our family as she's exercised this gift, knowing that God, our Father, hears us even when we don't even understand. You know, if you go back and you read the gospel according to Mark, I want to encourage you to notice something you may not have previously noticed about Jesus, and that is that he groans and he sighs. Two different expressions found not elsewhere about Jesus, but found in Mark's gospel. When Jesus didn't know what to say, he did the small things. He groaned and he sighed. And at the end of his life, when all the compounding problems came crashing down upon Jesus, his own people plotted against him. He began to sweat blood. His government ruled unjustly against him. His closest friends denied him. Nearly everyone else he loved deserted him. He was physically tortured and killed in the most brutal, brutal fashion of his day. He was humiliated in the most emotionally excruciating fashion. On top of it all, he took upon himself God's just punishment for the sin of the world. The fullness of God's just punishment for our sin upon himself. Jesus lets out one final sound upon the cross, one final noise. Mark 15, 37. Jesus uttered a loud cry. and He breathed his last. There was nothing left he could say, only an, in, an audible groan. On the cross, the Father heard and accepted Jesus' groan so that he would forever hear our groans, our sighs, and our cries. And that is a sure hope. So when you don't feel anything, you can groan, you can sigh, and know that you have a Father in heaven who hears you because of what Jesus did for you. I was recently listening to a story 
uh, father was sharing about his son, Mark. He was recalling about how Mark's grandma would often call on the telephone to talk to Mark, who at the time, Mark was only, only three years old. And the grandma asked Mark, Mark, how old are you? And the only way Mark at that time knew how to share his age was to hold up three fingers. So he looks at his blanket, which he loves dearly, right? He's not going to take that down. He looks at his phone in his right hand, and he's like, puts down the phone, holds up three fingers. <laughs> of course, the grandma can't see this. So, so the mom comes in, she intercedes, she grabs the phone, and she says, Grandma, Grandma, Mark, he's holding up three fingers. And the grandma just, oh, she just loved that. She heard it, and she remembered that fondly for the rest of her life. When you, friends, are feeling numb, stuck, mute, and there's nothing you can do but groan or sigh, the Holy Spirit picks up the phone, intercedes, and says to the Father, Father, you know exactly what he is saying. And the Father always hears. Let's pray. Father, I lift up my friends this morning who feel stuck, who feel numb, who are, who are experiencing these compounding problems with their life, and they don't know what to do. Father, first of all, encourage them this morning to, to give voice for all the, and, and complaint to all the things going on in their lives, all the problems. Please also encourage them that you have a purpose for them in this, that you are working a deeper humility in their life, that you are making sure their hope is on something far more steadfast than their feelings or circumstances. And finally, God, help us just do the little things. Help us groan. Help us sigh to you, knowing that we have a Father who is so good that he hears those sighs, he hears those prayers, he hears those tongues, and he longs to answer those prayers. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.